Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stamore Major, and welcome to episode 44. Can you believe it? This is like a real thing. It's really happening. I don't think at the beginning I had any particular... I probably had like a high-level plan of like one day, you know, when I'm striding across the world as a podcasting... You know, you have to start out with big thoughts, right? Um, But I think the reality was that uh, I was wondering if I was ever going to get past episode 10. I can remember episode... 16 was some kind of a big deal because, yeah, they were saying that you should have like 16 episodes before you put it onto uh, Apple uh, Podcasts and then you're more likely to get picked up for their like, you know, new and interesting spot or whatever it was. So I thought that was quite a big deal. Then we went through that and then 25 seems like a round number and then, but 44, uh, (laughs) there's not much to be said about 44. So it just seems like a big number. I think we're getting to numbers now that are bigger than my age. So I'm like, oh, this is, you know, this is, this is a big, big boy show. So um, I thought I'd share with you a little bit like how well it's going from my point of view. Uh, firstly, thank you so much, everyone that's writing to me. I probably get two or three emails a day, which is awesome. I love reading them. I'm going to steer clear of uh, writing back to every single one because I could see how that might not scale up very well. But even this morning, I've just got a lovely email from Carlos Barrera. Uh, nice to hear from you, Carlos. He's in a, a Spanish national in sweden uh working on his boat so i'll be reading that out tomorrow but um it makes it very special but you know how many people are listening what's going on is this thing that you are listening to uh does everybody else listen to it as well or are you on your own are you losing your mind listening to me well the good news is uh, we're up from 10. I think I spent a lot at the beginning of this believing there was about 10 people listening. We're up from there. So I just put out the uh, C is for cooking, the third one in the ABC of boating. And that had about 460 downloads in the first day, which for me is a, a new high. I haven't had that many in the first day. I would normally get about a 1,000 to 1,200 downloads in the first 30 days. And to put that in perspective, the research I've done shows there's about 850,000 podcasts active at the moment across all platforms. Um, it's, you know, it's a huge number, but you compare that to what's going on on YouTube, and YouTube has way, way bigger numbers than that. There's millions of YouTube channels, and people are uploading you know, millions of hours of footage a day around the world are, are being created uh, for YouTube. So podcast world is a lot smaller. Some of the statistics I was looking at said that 70% of the US population um, was unaware really of what a podcast was. But it did say is that people who listen to podcasts on the whole are uh, have a higher IQ. Yeah, uh, um, more intelligent, more beautiful, uh, sm- stronger, smarter, fitter. That's what I read anyway. <laughs> but um, no, they did say that 70% of people have yet to kind of like break into the podcast realm and um, you know, listening to them as a form of, uh, of uh, entertainment. So that's a new interesting area that we're in. Now, how well does, you know, 460 odd in the first day stack up? The statistics are all based around how many people download it in the first 30 days. So if you uh, have an average podcast across the board, what's the median number? The median number is 141 downloads in 30 days. So at 460 odd, we're doing pretty good on that. The next big one to click our way through is um, 1,500 downloads in the first 30 days, which would put you in the top 20% of podcasts around the world. I find that amazing. 1,500 downloads, that's like achievable. Uh, the next next number up from there, some people said 3,000, some people said 3,400, but somewhere in around 3,200 
downloads in the first 30 days put your podcast in the top 10% worldwide and 9,000 in the first 30 days would put you in the top 5%. So you can imagine that it goes up from there and there are some uh, pinnacles in uh, in podcast land like like Joe Rogan or something like that, who are, you know, tens of thousands of podcasts in one. So it's spreading and it's becoming a thing, but podcasts aren't listened to by everyone. So, you know, if you're talking to people uh, and you want to share with them that we're doing this, then uh, just give them the link or point them in the right direction or whatever, and uh, hopefully we'll see it swell. The benefit is, from my point of view, um, if there's more people listening, then uh, we will in the end attract ourselves a, a sponsor. I can tell you what my, my plan is. Here's my, my plan for all this. I want to get sponsored by West Marine or another online um, chandlery store because here's my clever plan. What I'd like to start doing is doing some gear reviews uh, on the podcast, but film it and then put them on YouTube as well. And I figure that someone like West Marine can benefit from that. Um, and then send me gear, I review it, I've got more content, you learn about stuff, they get their gear back, everybody's happy. That all sounds to me like it might be a good idea. So that's that's the direction I'm going. So if you know anybody that uh, <laughs> works in management of West Marine, just uh, give them my number. But uh, yeah, I think we're doing okay. We're, we're moving ourselves forward here. And uh, and you're, you are not alone. I feel like there's a song in there somewhere. Uh, you are not alone listening to The Mariner. Um, so what are we going to talk about this week? Uh, well, let's, um, you know, I've got a, a very interesting thing which we can bring up today. It is the 3rd of May as I uh, record this. And that means tomorrow is Star Wars Day. It's uh, May the 4th. May the 4th be with you. Um, but it's an important day for the Patreons because we do the draw. We said when we first started out doing the uh, Patreon, you know, you've got, um, if you listen to the podcast, you just want to help out, it's five bucks a go. But if you want to get involved more, um, we started doing a thing with um, seamanship videos. I definitely regret heavily not um, not continuing to do that because I was doing one a week, which would now mean I'd have 50 of them um, stored up, ready to go and turn into a proper online seamanship course. It didn't happen. You know, a lot's happened for me this year, um, family-wise, business-wise, all the rest of it. Um, it's definitely like right at the top of the list of things to do because it's it's a great direction to go. Being able to learn um, online now, we're all getting so used to it. Seamanship, I think it's something that can be taught in that way. I learned so much from books and I took it out into the ocean and applied it um, you know, in very practical ways. I think that that's exactly the same with YouTube. You can learn stuff with sailing, which is a little bit counterintuitive a little bit oh i see how he's doing that i wouldn't have thought that you can learn that and put it into action and just miss out you know thousands of hours of having to work it out for yourself so i think that's a good way to go and i'm really excited to to work on that project it is again something that's very like hard to do like if you create an hour and a half of podcast you've got to record it which could take you you know two and a half hours because you keep stopping and starting and if you're like me, you start out by eating gummies and then realize you know, the first 25 minutes have to be thrown away because there's this like old man sounds of someone like with the gummies in his mouth. But anyway, the um, you, you take two and a half hours making an hour's worth of, uh, of podcast. Oh, I see I'm throwing things all over the place as I'm talking to you. Um, the, uh, and then you have to edit it, which involves listening back through it again, and then you've got to put it online. So every time you put, let's say every time you put an hour out, it takes like three hours to create. If you're doing three a week and they're two-hour podcasts, you can see how this becomes uh, quite a quite a thing. If you're then doing YouTube videos on top of it, and like I don't know about anybody else does it, but it takes me at least 
probably for a good half an hour video on YouTube, it probably takes 12 hours to set it all up and then um, scripting it and setting up the set and getting everything in, uh, in order, filming it, editing it, and then putting it all out. So I am interested to talk to anybody who, um, well, has solutions for video editing and, uh, and, and has knowledge on how best to, to engage in that production process because I certainly know how all this stuff works. And we have boats here, we have boats galore, we have the syllabus already written out. It's just how do we solve that problem to, to bring it to you in a, in a quality format. That doesn't mean that my entire week is uh, spent producing this stuff. But um, anyway, the point being, the $5 that comes in from uh, the Patreon podcast listeners is super awesome, but the $20 one um, is going to start being repopulated with seamanship videos very quickly. Um, the There are levels above that, though. There's a $50 level above that, a $100 level above that, and then a $200, and they relate to um, being entered into different draws and getting the opportunity to win some pretty awesome prizes. Now, it's all thrown a little bit off kilter at the moment because um, Spartan, my company with the, you know, runs the boats and does all these races and voyages. We are not operational right now because of COVID. It's just impossible to know what's happening and what's not happening. But as things get better, you know, we'll be able to probably by the autumn, we'll have a clear idea. We do have three boats at least that need to come back across the Atlantic. And the uh, lucky Patreon uh, people who have been um, entered into the draw who have been uh, supporting me for the last year they will be uh, have their names put in the hat tomorrow on Star Wars Day and people will be drawn out and people will be winning things like five day trips uh, doing regattas or short voyages and then there will be two prizes of transatlantic trips uh, with me and probably that will be on board the Open 60 or on board Longer Barter if we're going to do it this year so looking forward to being able to announce those tomorrow um, and, and just a general thanks to all the Patreons, as I say before, who support all this, who uh, who make it worthwhile. It's uh, it's fantastic to be able to um, look at something. I just sit here, as I say, talking into the microphone, and I'm getting emails, and people are putting some coins in the jar, and uh, we're doing these draws, and it's like a little community coming together. I was thinking about getting into doing um, monthly uh, Zoom meetings for everybody from the Patreon thing. I don't know if anybody's uh, interested in that, but we're going into the season now. There might be some questions I can help with with, with sailing or anything else I rabbit on about. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll have a see how they, we can incorporate that in. That would be wonderful. But um, what are we going to talk about this week, Chris? That's like a that's 10 minutes of, uh, of tangents already. <laughs> well, you know, it's all pretty important. I think the Patreon people are pretty important. Um, I was going to talk about uh, a figure from history. And uh, what I'm going to do, I've decided that uh, the temptation here is I could write myself a script and, uh, and have loads of facts in it. And then potentially by the end of this, you know, let's say 50 minutes, you would like have lots of facts about this person. But I'm not unaware of the fact that it's a dreadfully boring way to learn about history. So I'm going to give you the kind of watchkeeper's version of this, which is you come on deck, it's wet, it's nasty, it's horrible, and uh, the coffee comes out, I get a big mug of it, and I start telling a story, which anybody who's selling me knows that's exactly how it goes. And um, then my process is to entertain with occasional <laughs> dips into factual uh, uh, details. So uh, I'm going to tell you a story which is true and is wonderful. And you can research and find out more about this person and their history and life. But I am not to be held accountable for um, poetic license or, or inaccuracies. But I'll, I'll try and keep it pretty close to what's going on. So who are we talking about? We are talking about a guy called Dr. John Ray. 
John Ray was uh, an, or- uh, from the Orkneys. He's Orcadian, I believe that's correct. And uh, he was um, up and about and working, doing his thing in the mid-1800s, okay? Uh, he was a doctor, but a doctor of medicine. He was an MD. And he had ended up working in northern Canada for the Hudson Bay Company. And the Hudson Bay Company has got a bit of a kind of uh, I guess bad reputation or variable reputation, how you look at it, it's certainly not good. Um, you know, a lot of um, Westerners going out into a pristine, untouched wilderness and then just finding ways to make profit, many of which were not particularly moral. But um, and their interactions with the indigenous people, um, again, uh, easy to to decide that it's not positive. But that's how it went down. Um and he was he was working for them. Now the good thing is that in and amongst this scene of uh, more sort of uh, colonial uh, oppression, um, John Ray is is a very cool guy. He it's uh, it's you know it's as you would imagine everything's in black and white. Everyone's wearing big hats and got beards. It's the eighteen hundreds, and uh, he though is someone who sees that there is a great wisdom and great knowledge to be taken from interacting positively with the Eskimo of that area. They they do describe the tribe they are interacting with as Eskimo. It's not just I'm using that generic term. It's always referred to as the Eskimo with a kind of French M-A-U-Q at the end of it. I'm not just, I'm trying to be accurate. That's what um, I believe that uh, the peoples from that area were called, but do correct me if I'm wrong on that. But he was interacting with the, uh, the Eskimo and recognizing that although their methods had been somewhat written off by other Western explorers, um, he realized there was, there was great intelligence in what they were doing. Things like people called them lazy because they moved real slowly. He recognized that what they were doing was making sure they didn't build up sweat, which would then be on their skin, which would then saturate their uh, inner insulative layers and then leave them open to the risk of, of hypothermia. Um, they had uh, unusual eye coverings, which no one kind of, everyone thought was a bit weird, but they had these like little bits of hide that went across their face like masks with slits in them. And those slits would then stop uh, snow glare uh, from from giving them snow blindness, so they could be out on the on the ice in the snow for much longer periods without succumbing to that. I don't know if you ever had that. It's really really painful. Getting arc eye or or snow uh, blindness is the same thing where just your eyes been exposed to um, damaging. Uh, levels of light of UVA, UVB, whatever it was from. I used to get it a little bit when I did more welding. Um, if you don't get the mask in front of your eyes, you know, before you press the trigger on the on the MIG welder, you can end up with uh, little like white spots in the middle of your eyes and very sort of tired, dry, sticky eyes. But um, or stingy eyes rather. Um, I but I, a couple of years ago, I made a mistake. I was with my um, daughter down in the uh, basement, and we have one of those UV light uh, things for for killing off germs that are in the water. We have a well here, so we got to we got to clean the water as best we can. It's very very clean, but you know there could be things living in it. So this little UV thing kills everything off. And we were checking to see if the bulb needed replacing. So I pulled it out of its protective holder with it still switched on, and it's you know it's a very interesting bluish light you know what uv bulbs look like well we both looked at it for i would have said not more than 20 seconds like yeah it looks fine cleaned it off a little bit that evening my god like the pain was just unbelievable and i felt so awful because my daughter had uh, equally got sore eyes it was like having uh like i'd been working with chilies and i'd put my fingers in my eyes it was like that 
Um, so, um, yeah, and you know, this is the thing that happens on boats as well, is that uh, the, the sails are white, the deck's white, the sea's reflective, um, everything's white, and you can end up with very sore eyes if you're not wearing proper sunglasses. But sunglasses weren't available to the Eskimos, so what they come up with is with these glasses with these thin slits in, which did the same thing, disrupted the wavelength of the light and stopped it from being so bright uh, coming into their eyes. John Ray recognized that these kind of things were the secret to being able to do expeditions beyond the tree line and, and survive it. There had been a number of cartography expeditions and uh, people like looking to find you know, the river outlets and, and working across the, the, the top of Canada already, trying to find this thing, the Northwest Passage. Um, but they had been using a lot of uh, Western exploratory methods, which were like, are fine in, in the areas they came from, but they were not up to speed with how to move over snow and ice in this way. And uh, a lot of these expeditions had succumbed to, to hunger, to hypothermia, to exposure, and they died. John Ray, by using the wisdom of the Eskimo people, um, all the things that they taught him and learning the language and everything else, he was able to run some of the very first expeditions up to the Copper River and up to the Boothia Peninsula in northern Canada and, and return without uh, any issues. So he was with the, the Hudson Bay Company, but he was clearly cut from a, a different kind of cloth. Well, he is uh, active in the 19, uh, sorry, 1840s, 1850s, and something else was going on in the world at that time, which uh, was really not part of John Ray's world whatsoever, but he ended up paying a, a very big price as he became a, a linchpin in that, uh, in that situation, and that was the uh, obsession which was going on in the 19th century with finding the Northwest Passage. That's where John Ray sort of connects with popular culture. Uh, what happened between um, himself and the Admiralty and uh, a guy called Sir John Franklin and Sir John Franklin's wife and uh, it's a whole it's a whole story. So <laughs> grab your coffee, here we go. So 19, uh, not 19, geez, I'm obsessed that it happened in the 19s, is 18, 1840s. Um, we've got this guy, Sir John Franklin. He had already got a bit of a reputation for being a bit of a buffoon. He was a naval officer. He was um, from a big family that had a long history and all this kind of stuff, but he was a bit of a bit of a stuffed shirt. There wasn't much to him. And unfortunately, he'd already been involved in an expedition, which had ended up uh, in ships crushed on the ice, and it was only the actions of one of the midshipmen in the group and uh, local uh, Eskimo uh, warriors who were out on the ice, and hunters that were out on the ice, who saved them from, from certain death. As part of that, famously in the press at the time, when the reports came in, the expedition members had ended up uh, eating their shoes. Now, that sounds completely insane, but it does kind of fit into a background of this happening in other expeditions in other parts of the world at similar times. What happens is you just end up that hungry that obviously you're trying to get things out of the water, you're trying to get things out of the air if there's birds, you're trying to get any kind of wildfowl or any anything. If you can't, then you start to turn to anything which is on the boat, which is organic, which could be mussels on the side, it could be weed, it could be any, any animals which are on board, of course, like ships, cat, whatever it might be. And then it starts to break down to um, anything which is organic at all. 
And obviously ships would have a lot of leather chafing gear in all sorts of uh, particular places around the boat. And they would have leather shoes and leather belts. And what would happen is they'd get desperate and they'd end up boiling these things so they could just get some kind of nutrients out of them. Like you've got to be at a pretty extreme. There is one level of extremity and survival which comes beyond that, which is when you then start to enter into cannibalism. But in terms of it still staying comedic and lighthearted, eating your shoes and eating the leather off the mast is uh, about as bad as it can get. If you read the stories of Magellan, you know, he, he sailed into the Caribbean looking for whatever he was looking for, another way around the world, um, stood on the isthmus of, uh, of Panama there um, between North America and South America and could see this vast expanse of ocean to the west, which he named the Pacific, although that's uh, kind of ironic, is it? <laughs> There's some parts of it are definitely not Pacific. But um, he then went off down the coast of uh, South America on the eastern side looking for a way into this other ocean and there was no charts or anything so they went hundreds of miles up the amazon hundreds of miles up every river that they approached until they finally found the magellan strait and they were like wow this is great it's named after our captain this would be perfect no of course they named it but they they found their way through tierra del fuego but as you come out into the uh, pacific ocean the southern pacific ocean there on the west coast of south america uh, there's there ain't nothing to eat out there that's you're pretty close to one of the um uh, oceanic deserts of the world the the bottom is so far down that there's no uh, life uh, no chain of life no ecosystem that spreads up from the bottom to to help out anything that might be living at the top so you end up with there's whales passing through the sharks passing through there might be big pelagic fish once in a while but if you're not in one of those streams it is an oceanic desert and Magellan and his men again ended up eating all the leather off the masts and the the leather off the blocks and no doubt anything shoes wise they had so it wasn't that um, Franklin you know as an of himself was some kind of maniac he just it was what it was was it badly planned bad luck everything else whatever it all went wrong and they ended up on the ice so he was not exactly like the flavor of the month in uh in in the uk at that time but there was a lot of it going around there was a strange situation where we had come to the end of the uh the wars between uh the uk and france and we had now a lot of navy ships a lot of naval personnel officers and, and ratings who were not doing much. Uh, the Navy didn't want to get rid of them. The Admiralty didn't want to get rid of them because they were under the impression that war could restart any time again, the Napoleonic Wars. You know, we've had so many interactions across the channel with uh, France and the UK that uh, it could break it out at any point. But they had to have something to do with all these ships and men. So there was a thought, to, you know, how can we put them to best use? And one of the ways that that happened is that there was an obsession in Arctic exploration for the Northwest Passage in this period, in the mid 1800s, and you know it started earlier, but it was at its at its peak in the mid 1800s, and um, that was because we wanted to have a good way, a quicker way of getting across to China, to India, to the Philippines, otherwise known as the Spice Islands. And at the time, the Suez Canal and Panama Canals weren't open. They weren't, uh, it was decades before the Suez Canal opened and, and many years later until the Panama Canal was open. So any ship going to China and to the Far East would be going down and around the Horn of Africa and then up to whatever was their, their destination and then having to loop the planet to get back. They'd have to then dive down towards Cape Horn and then back up the Atlantic. So any 
any commercial advantage which could be gained by finding a quicker sea route was definitely going to be good for British interests. And at that time, obviously, Britain ruled the waves. They were a very strong seafaring nation. There's a reason why the Meridian, uh, Zero Meridian ended up going through uh, Greenwich. It was just kind of Britain did sailing stuff and oceans really, really well. And they, they wanted to find this new route and they wanted to um, make it theirs and, and keep on spreading that empire. So the the thought was if they could get up over the top of Canada and the US and and then kind of come down into Asia via the Bering Sea in Japan, that this would be a lot quicker and that you could go either way. You wouldn't be then caught up in having to go with the world's winds quite as much as you are going around Cape Horn. So um, the search for the Northwest Passage was on and the Admiralty did end up sending, I believe between land and sea, there was like 200 expeditions went looking for the Northwest Passage. It was a big deal. And into this, uh, Franklin has, you know, dipped his toe. It's not gone very well. They've ended up eating their shoes. He's a bit of a laughing stock. He was a big kind of portly, uh, bald-headed kind of comical guy, I think. And uh, he, in in of himself, like not much of a, a worry. But he had, uh, <laughs> he had a very stalwart and strong-willed wife uh, behind him, or with him, or in front of him, or wherever she uh, decided she was going to stand. And uh, she was absolutely certain that this was not going to be the ongoing uh, way that their family would be remembered, that there would be more legacy than him eating his shoes. So she pushed him and she pushed the, the Admiralty to get him to go on like the next expedition. And indeed, it all lined up. And uh, Sir John Franklin set off with his ships, the Erebus and the Terror, and they were heading off towards Canada to um, to try and find the Northwest Passage. At this time, it's about the 1840s, uh, John Ray's just kind of doing his thing, being a, a, a dude out on the ice, and his job with the Hudson Bay Company was cartography. He had learned to do all these expeditions. The coastline of Northern Canada was not yet surveyed, and he was going out leading very successful cartography uh, surveys, some information of which is still like the basic principles of charts that are used in the area now obviously built up for more modern bathymetric data and and uh, but his accuracy on his uh, initial things that he did was good enough that and certainly until very recently it was still in use so he's doing cartography everyone's trying to find the northwest passage john franklin has been given a kick up the arse by his wife and told go back to sea and do better than eating your shoes this is the 1840s now what happens next he disappears in 18 i think it was 45 and um is never heard of again and so now now lady franklin's got a bit of an issue so lady franklin starts to push and push and push the admiralty to send expeditions to go and find her husband what she's hoping for is that either a they find him or b that he has somehow uh like done something useful for discovery of the northwest passage and they can like latch on to that it's an early example of spin of uh you you take the story the facts of the story and then you spin it up until you can create a whole new version of it which is a bit more appealing to your audience or looks a little bit better on you and she was a bit of a master at this so the Admiralty was now caught in a bit of a tricky situation. They're sending out all these ships. They had, in fact, got a prize going uh, for somebody who would find the, the link that would uh, create the Northwest Passage. They had got a lot of expeditions that had already been done from the West coming across the top of Canada, which is very simple, open ground. It's nothing too complicated going on. They had expeditions coming in from the east, from uh, Newfoundland, Labrador, and then into the uh, Hudson Bay and, and into um, Peel Sound. And uh, they had 
they had narrowed it down that was about a thousand mile section which was the crux and it's you're trying to get between this archipelago of islands and the northern coast of canada they've got all that going on but now they've got this woman lady franklin push 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 to send people not only to look for the northwest passage but to look for her husband so they're getting a little bit peeved off by this that they you know having a all this pressure this lobbying basically going on um so I guess we can leave it at that point and jump back. I was going to make sure I tell the story in order here. I did try and record this earlier and I realized that I jumped around so much in the story that it became completely unintelligible. So that's it. I think I've laid that down nicely. We've got John Ray doing his thing. She's doing her thing now, petitioning to try and find her lost husband and uh, and the, this competition which is on to find the Northwest Passage. A lot of it has been charted, but this last crux section, they don't know what's doing. So... Now's the point to introduce the geography of the Northwest Passage. So <laughs> when I introduced it in the previous version I recorded yesterday, I started listening back to it in edit. I'm like, yeah, I kind of know the area, but you've managed to name like 20 islands and straits and everything. And someone's trying to listen to this on a podcast is bloody impossible. So the, the crux of the Northwest Passage, I worked out, is easier to describe as it's a, a Z, a Z, the letter Z. Okay, you come in from at the top, coming in from the east you have to take a tight turn and dive down to the south, a little bit to the southeast. That's the kind of going down the back of the Z. You've got to take another big turn and head out to the west. Everything to the top left of our Z is all like islands. We don't need to worry about that. And there are a couple of islands tucked up inside inside the, the, the lower right-hand corner of this, of this Z. But basically, you've got to come in, turn and go south, and then turn and go west and and you you're out but no one could find the way through and the reason they couldn't find the way through is because there's some very particular um orientations of islands and of the um the the straits and everything that's happening in that area and it kind of it ends up getting really complicated so the overall situation is that uh, at the top you've got this area called peel sound you come in from the east across the top of your z and then peel sound you turn and start to head south Peel Sound, however, is quite open water and there's a lot of pack ice in there. And the primary winds at this uh, this area are coming from the north, okay? They're blowing the pack ice to the south. To the south of the top of our Z, as you run down the main part of the Z, there are a number of islands. You're passing between islands, the Prince of Wales Island, Somerset Island, and the Boothia Peninsula, okay? so. All good so far in terms of they knew the navigation, they knew where everything kind of was. The problem is, is the pack ice is getting pushed down into these uh, channels. It's starting to get physically constrained by the the, the, the passages getting narrower and narrower. This big open area of Peel Sound, all of its ice is now getting shoved into something called the McClintock Channel. And as you get lower and lower down in the Z, getting towards that bottom turn where you're going to head to the west, it's just so much pressure. The ships would get... Uh, held in the ice and then crushed in the ice before the ships could ever get into the lower section of this which is called the Victoria Strait and get away to the west so they would go across the top of the Z they take the turn go down into the McClintock Channel get caught in the ice the ice would drift south on the breeze it would get pinned in between the rock walls and the the islands on either side it would crush the ship and then these poor people are having to walk across the ice and at the end of the day they weren't like super experienced or super equipped um 
uh, Arctic explorers. They were, you know, primarily uh, ratings and officers who were not being used in normal naval uh, activities, and the ships were not particularly suited to it either. There are ways of making ships which will stand up to ice. If you think of um, Fridjof Nansen's uh, ship, uh, uh, what was that called, Fram, that uh, went up to the, it went very close to the pole, actually. I think it went within a was it a degree or two of the pole, um, locked into the ice absolutely as they planned to do. But then think of Shackleton's ship Endurance. And he actually had an opportunity to use Fram and he couldn't afford it. So he um, he took Endurance instead. She was slab-sided. And once those slab sides get pinched in the ice, unless the ice releases or you can dig it out or chip it out of the ice or something, that, that pinch just increases and increases. And if the ice gets driven into an area where it's constrained by the surrounding land, the ship is destroyed. And that, unfortunately, is what happened to um, every expedition that went in there. So they were looking for, it got to the point with the um, the Northwest Passage of, we need a way to get around that bottom turn in the Z that I described. We know about the top, we know about the top turn, we know how to go down the McClintock Channel on the back of the Z, but it's that bottom turn in that bottom corner before we can come out through the Victoria Strait and into Cambridge Bay. We, we don't know how to do that and no one could find a way through. So Franklin now is gone and uh, the, the, the Canadian government in 2014 and 2016 finally found the ships on the bottom. Um, I, can, I can spool that forward. You know, he, he had been uh, pinned in the ice. The ships had been uh, pinched, crushed, whatever it was, and they are on the bottom. So by the time uh, John Ray is up and about in this area and what I'm going to describe now, what has happened is that those ships have been pinned in the ice and they have been sunk. We know that now, we know that now because the Canadian government found them just six or seven years ago. So um, where, does, where, does the, where do these two worlds collide? Well, they collide when uh, Ray is doing cartography of the area which is at the bottom of the Z for coming off the back of the Z and taking that dive out to the west he is exploring that whole area and what he realizes is that there is a piece of land there which had been known as King William's land and what he realized from talking to the the local Eskimo that he was interacting with he spoke the language um, and from his own research and what he was looking at he realized that King William land was actually King William Island and as soon as he realized that that was the way suddenly that they could get out of this um, this crux move at the bottom of the Z, which is the, uh, the this part of the Northwest Passage. If they could go around the back of King William Island, as he realized it was, as all that ice is getting stuffed together at the bottom of the, the Z, it's getting uh, crammed together in the McClintock Channel. And as it goes into the Victoria Strait, it just destroys the ships. Um, what they could do is they could nip round the back, like outside of the bottom corner of the Z. Suddenly there's a new option. You can kind of make the bottom of the Z into an S. You can go round the back of this island, avoid all of that pressure in the ice, and then find yourself an open uh, corridor and nip out and nip to the west and off into what was already an understood and, uh, and relatively easy to access area of the Northwest Passage. So Ray discovered the Ray Strait, as, he, as it's now named, um, which gave us the way to like crack the problem of how to get through the Northwest Passage. And the fact that um, the exact uh, route that he described was then used by Roald Amundsen in 1904 when he took Joa through there. In fact, Joa Haven is just like a couple of miles south of the Ray Strait. 
Um, he had to, because the world was a lot colder at that time, it took Joa a couple of years to get through, a couple of seasons. She was frozen in, then released and frozen in and released. But that was the way that they got through between 1903 and 1906. So um, in 1854, this is when Ray discovers the Ray Strait. Now, Franklin had been 1845, 1846, around there. So the question is that the uh, what had happened to Franklin was the other big mystery of the area. There was how to get through the Northwest Passage, and there was what happened to Franklin. A question, there was a lot of people had been lost in this area, but Lady Franklin's push, 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 and they wanted to know what happened to Franklin. It was all over the press and had been for years. So Ray ends up talking to a load of the, the local Inuit and they give him like the they give him knowledge about the area. They tell him what they know. And there's a wonderful pamphlet which you can get online. I just did a little bit of research and found it myself. It's called The Melancholy Fate of Sir John Franklin and His Party as Disclosed by Dr. Ray's Report. Now, to be fair to Ray, he was connecting with the Admiralty when he finally got back to the UK he connected with the Admiralty to share with them his cartography um, revelations that he had found this way to to get through the last part of the Northwest Passage because he's pretty clever and he realized um, you know there's a reward here I can't I think it was like uh, I think it was 10,000 pounds if I remember correctly which would be a heap of money now you know it's 100, 170 years ago um, we could all find out exactly how much it was and we can ask Google what it's worth there. But anyway, for a guy that's working with the Hudson Bay Company he's from Orkney and it's 1850, there's a lot of money about to come his way. So he connects with the Admiralty about that. What he also does is he says um, that I think you would like to know, I found out this other stuff about um, John Franklin. And uh, But, you know, this is just for you, but I'm just telling you this is what I heard from the Eskimo who I was interacting with and um, from, from some bits of evidence that I've got here myself. So he writes a report which is, hey, I found the Northwest Passage. They go, brilliant. Thank God for that. Here's the money. They actually gave him the money for it. So I think that's a pretty fair indicator that he found the Northwest Passage. Uh, they wanted to like have the end of this. Uh, now they, they're kind of done with sending hundreds of expeditions to the Northwest Passage. Um, and they'd quite clearly, quite quite obviously realized that you couldn't use it as a as a viable um you know there might be a way through but it was very very difficult you couldn't use it at that time for a, an actual shipping uh channel a commercial waterway so um the only other issue that they wanted to get like sorted out was could they somehow get uh, lady franklin off their backs and stop um, um lobbying them for more expeditions to look for her, her husband so they released the whole of ray's report to the press um, and what was in it, unfortunately, was uh, was was not good news. So let me let me read from it. I think um, you know that's uh, I think it's fair. Let's get it in his own words. Um, this is written. It says Repulse Bay, July 29th. Sir, this is Dr. John Ray's actual actual words. He says, um, I have the honor to mention for the information of my Lord's Commissioners of the Admiralty that during my journey over the ice and snow this spring, with the view of completing the survey of the west shore of Boothia, I met with Eskimo in Pelly Bay, from one of whom I learned that a party of white men had perished from want of food some distance to the westward and not far beyond the large river, containing many falls and rapids. Subsequently, further particulars were received and a number of articles purchased, which places the fate of a portion, if not all, of the then survivors of Sir John Franklin's long-lost party, beyond a doubt, a fate as terrible as the imagination can conceive. 
Um, I'm wondering how much of this I should... Uh, he goes into quite a lot of detail about it. He says that um, he realizes that the ships had been crushed by the ice and that these uh, guys were first seen by the Eskimo like walking out across the snow and they've obviously got almost no uh, food with them so they buy a small seal off the uh, off the Eskimo. Um, but then uh, they are then found later on and they are all dead. So let me see if I can just find into, uh, jump into a little bit here. Let's have a try this. A later date, the same season, but previous to the breaking up of the ice, the bodies of some 30 persons were discovered on the continent and five on an island near it. Uh, about a long day's journey to the northwest of a large stream, which can be no other than Back's Great Fish River. Um, uh, as its description and that of the low shore in the neighborhood of Point Ogle and Montreal Island agree exactly with that of Sir George Back. Some of the bodies had been buried, uh, probably those of the first victims of famine. Some were in a tent or tents, uh, others under the boat which had been turned over to form a shelter, and several lay scattered about in different directions. Of those found on the island, one was supposed to have been an officer as he had a telescope strapped over his shoulders and his double-barreled gun lay underneath him. From the mutilated state of many of the corpses and the contents of the kettles, it is evident that our wretched countrymen had been driven to the last resource, cannibalism, as a means of prolonging existence. So, you can imagine the thunderclap that this caused in the British press. We've now got uh, Sir John Franklin, who's been missing at this point for like nine years. You've got his wife, you know, obviously beside herself, but also seeing a bigger picture has been lobbying to get as many people to go and find out as possible. He was already a bit of a laughing stock for the whole shoe thing. Well, now, unfortunately, they've been reduced to, as he as he puts it, driven to the last resource. Um, and, uh, you know, we've heard stories of survival where this has happened in, in other times. Um there are laws about it. There are there are rules about it. There are moral guidelines about it. It's a, it's a very tricky thing to get into, but you can imagine it didn't look very good for John Franklin. Um, so the only recourse left to uh, Lady Franklin now was to try and drive John Ray out of history as much as was possible. And she had a lot of um, connections in literature and the papers and supposedly even knew like Charles Dickens and got Charles Dickens to put uh, put Ray down in all sorts of ways in the press. You remember a lot of Dickens's uh, writings were actually serialized and went out in the press. So he was, he was a, a journalist first and foremost and then a writer because these things all added up into stories, of course, which we now know and love. But um, she used everything she possibly had to like drive him out of history. And the stories and the songs and the sentiment and all that kind of stuff, the way that we think of John Franklin now, um, a lot of that is still spin-off 170 years later from her efforts. Meanwhile, this guy, Dr. John Ray, just passed into anonymity, although he's the guy that found out what happened to the Franklin expedition, which everyone was so keen on finding out. And he was the guy that found the the last navigable link in the in the uh, Northwest Passage. So an incredible guy. I'm not going to like go into like, you know, and then what happened to him afterwards and everything. Let's just try and just fill in some of the details around this a little bit. Um, there is some pushback on this. A lot of the details of, uh, of this story uh, I'm sharing with you come from the uh, a book called Fatal Passage. Um, it was written by a guy called Ken McGugan um, in 2001, I believe it was. And uh, he was doing research with the Scott Polar Institute and, and really finding out about all this stuff. And he got 
I, when I read the book, I really felt that Fatal Passage was uh, a very fair dealing with the with the details. I think he, he was a lot of stuff in there. He has had some pushback. Um, there's a guy, I think he's a PhD at the... Um, PhD at the University of Calgary, if I remember correctly, he's called William Barr. And he has said that, well, actually, uh, Ray wasn't that important. And he tries to create an argument that there was still 240 kilometers of the Boothia Peninsula, which is, you know, the the, the land which is alongside the, the waterway that's the, the, the Northwest Passage, that that hadn't been properly uh, surveyed at the time so how could Ray say that he found the last link when there were still bits undone but it's actually he's actually grabbing that from Ray's own work uh, what's interesting is that it's Franklin that finds the way down that channel that's what he did do he found his way down that channel and uh, and and you know it was navigable because their ship went down it and they walked down it and they they got where they got where their ships were finally found is in the bottom right-hand corner of that Z shape. You know, now they were crushed by the ice and sunk and everything, but they did navigate down that channel in one way or another. So there was never any real worry that the channel was open or not. There was more detail to be found. But the point was everyone was going down that way and had no idea how to get out the bottom of it because they all thought it was just solid land at the bottom. It was Ray that found the detail. So I push back a little bit on that. I don't think William Barr's uh, kind of getting the getting the message there 100%. The, the, the fact is, if the, if the Admiralty gave uh, Ray the money, then they were pretty happy with the, the deal. And the fact that the first ever passage through from uh, east to west on the Northwest Passage by Roald Amundsen was done exactly on the way that Ray said. It's like, oh, that's quite a, lot, <laughs> quite a lot of evidence. But, you know, you don't want to go like running into everything without without thinking it through it's lovely to get a great story but obviously you've got to get all the detail but there's some there's some pretty interesting uh uh arguments on either side of it i i think for myself i'm with ken mcgugan on this i think that it's uh john ray was the uh the guy that uh, that made it happen but um i think that uh franklin discovered much of that north south part of the uh of the first navigable northwest passage um I don't think anybody really cares about a stretch of coastline that he sailed past and that that coastline not being 100% surveyed somehow takes away the feat that uh, Ray did up above the uh, the wood line, up above the tree line, sorry, interacting with the locals, getting this knowledge, getting out on the water uh, and, and, and finding out what was land, what was channels. That That's Ray's uh, um, success in all of this and I don't think it should be uh, taken away from him. The good thing is that... Um, because of all the spin that happened, like Franklin has got a memorial at um, Westminster Abbey in the UK, which like that's big beans to get yourself in and around Westminster Abbey. That's where that's where all the big influences of the 1800s wanted to end up hanging out. Um, but since then, the Orcadian uh, MP, uh, what's his name now? I've got it here, actually. He is called uh, Alistair Carmichael. Yeah, of, of Orkney. He's the MP, the Minister of Orkney in uh, the UK. They managed to get themselves into a situation. We brought it up in um, Parliament and they were allowed to put a plaque there uh, alongside Franklin's memorial mentioning John Ray because he just basically doesn't exist anywhere else. So, so yeah, so I'm not sure what we should learn from that. Um, listen to the locals wherever you go. They probably know better than you do. Uh, be humble and learn from those who have something to teach. Um, eating your shoes can keep you alive. <laughs> um, and uh, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, I think would probably be the other thing in there. 
Um, it's a very interesting point in, in history. There's a lot going on. It's exciting to think they didn't really have a, a complete picture of, of what was going on in the world, how things were connected together. The story of the Northwest Passage is not yet really finished because uh, it's only in the last 10 years that the Americans were starting to make a bit of a claim on uh, the Northwest Passage because obviously access points in from the West go above Alaska, which they own. But then the entirety of the rest of it is... Uh, obviously directly uh, adjacent to Canadian water, to, to the Canadian coastline and is Canadian waterways and has been um, patrolled by Canadian icebreakers for decades. So I think there's still a bit of a like, <laughs> the Canadians are like, uh, sorry, what's this? <laughs> you own this? I don't think that's going to necessarily play out too well. But with the um, world undergoing um, changes in the environment, changes in the climate. Uh, it is open a lot more now. Uh, the last time I looked, I think there was a Polish expedition in 2000 and was it 14? They got through in six weeks from, from east to west on their, I think, 40 foot, quite, quite standard boat. Compare that to three years for old Amundsen to get through on uh, Joa. Um, things are obviously changing. We know that, but um, it might mean that that waterway does become open. And I think the marine industry is going to change in the next 10, 15 years, we're going to see a lot less use of uh, fossil fuels for powering these ships. They just have to. I know that the UK and Europe have started to get into uh, joint um, uh, discussions about the fact they're going to change their hydrocarbon policies and look for cleanups that they had scheduled to be 15 years down the line and now going to be happening very soon. Something that myself and my new uh, sponsor, who is a hydrogen energy uh, producer and hydrogen energy um uh, manufacturer of uh, of equipment. Actually, I can I can tell you that it's going to be uh, hydrogen engines for boats, because believe it or not, that that diesel engine of yours, something's going to have to happen to that because it you're not going to be arriving in your Tesla or similar and then getting into your dug 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 little two stroke Volvo whatnot to go out for the weekend. So um, these ships are going to have to get more uh, clean at sea. Uh, but also, if there's a shorter route that doesn't involve them doing much more mileage, obviously going through the equatorial regions is a lot longer, the Northwest Passage could yet be something which is uh, of great importance. So we shall see. But um, yeah, I thought it's just fun to, to, to bring up somebody from history with an interesting story. Uh, the book, as I say, is called Fatal Passage. It's by Ken McGugan. It's like 20 bucks and it's well worth a read if you're at sea on watch or whatever. Get it on your Kindle, of course. I've got my uh, Kindle now. I, I was always a little bit um, reticent because the older ones were uh, not waterproof. But the new one, whatever it is I've got, it's uh, not very expensive, like 120 bucks and it's waterproof. So um, you can accidentally leave it out in the cockpit or something and it gets, uh, gets rain on it or water on it and it's not an issue. And suddenly all these books are right there at hand. Like what an amazing time we live in that we can uh, just have access to any book we like uh, whilst in the middle of nowhere. But um, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, all there is to say about John Ray. I see I've managed to do that without getting too many details involved here. <laughs> and I think although my explanation of the navigation was a little uh, confusing, maybe it's a lot better than the one I tried to record yesterday, which uh, included like, yeah, the names of 20 different islands and straits all through the area. That would have left you... Um, reeling i think so 
Good. All right. Well, we're at the end of that, and uh, I want to keep this one quite uh, quite quick today. Uh, this is just coming up to 50 minutes, so uh, <laughs> you might have to listen to another episode if that uh, dog has got used to two-hour walks. But uh, yeah, things things are going well here. We've got the draw tomorrow for the Patreons, which is going to be awesome. We can uh, give some people some good news. How exactly and when exactly we're going to be able to do that will be based on people's travel arrangements, what they can and can't do with uh, the travel restrictions in their country, plus what we are able to do and what we're able to put on. But um, we've got uh, Longabada is out of the water today, getting scrubbed and new bottom paint. She's in Portugal. Uh, Challenger is still sitting in Spain, um, probably having a good time drying out. I do know that Challenger, before I bought her, was in the water for continuously for 15 years, um, which isn't great. So she's had nearly a year now through COVID to sit and dry out. So she will be uh, ready to go back together and get back on the ocean as soon as possibly can. Um, and then if our veterans proposal moves in the way that we are hoping it will do, then hopefully we'll have uh, a couple more boats to bring back from Europe. It could be that we are not putting on Spartan events in the way that we normally do, but that we have a series of transatlantics that you can join us for on these different boats uh, coming back to Canada. Hopefully that's all possible when um, the season gets good for crossing the Atlantic. Hopefully Canada will allow us to come in and non-essential travelers will be able to come in. Otherwise, it's just going to be me <laughs> on a boat in the middle of nowhere on my own talking to you uh, on a podcast and then sending it to you. You'll have to just listen to it that way. That's uh, that's also possible. Um, one of the things that someone's asking me the day is how are we going to go with a podcast when I go and do the Round the World event in November? Because obviously I'm going to go and do this Westabout attempt. Uh, I'll actually get going on that on about the 5th of November. There'll be training before it in the UK. Um I think that everything is dovetailed together quite nicely. Podcasts, once you've even done like a couple of hours, it only comes to a couple of hundred megabytes uh, for a high quality audio recording. So it's actually not too difficult to send it back via the uh, broadband satellite link, which we'll have on board the boat. So that's already been accounted for. So my idea, God help us, is I'm going to be trying to do a podcast on the boat at sea. But um I think you're going to have to get used to there being very little editing in it because I cannot see me beating around the world, uh, writing blogs, taking photos, doing live stream interviewing and the other thing that will be available and editing a podcast as we go. I think that might um, that might dry up rather quickly. But if we can do things which are a bit quicker, maybe half an hour, just tell you how it's going and uh, and share with you the experience and then send it off the boat, I think, um, I think that could be quite good fun. So look forward to that but we've got a lot to do before we get there it's beautiful sunshine here in nova scotia today i'm looking out as always into the garden and this um, beautiful 40 foot high magnolia tree that's right outside my window here is absolutely resplendent with beautiful blooms as big as your fist all the way across the thing and gently falling down onto the uh onto the lawn here we've got some of the azaleas and rhododendrons out it really is uh, quite glorious here so i hope wherever you are that um it's uh, starting to get nice whether that's get cool because you're in the southern hemisphere and looking forward to fall or get warm if you're in the northern hemisphere and you're looking to get out on the water the next one i'm going to record will be a uh, questions and tangents i've got two or three emails here which have been sent um which i'm looking forward to sharing with you from uh all parts of the world actually from uh from canada from england from the us and from sweden so we'll be uh, going through those and uh, that should be with you in the next 24 hours. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and looking forward to getting back on the water soon. And I shall speak to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.